Welcome to the Restoration Living Podcast with our host, military chaplain and spiritual care director, James Johnson. With so many voices in this world fighting for our attention, it's easy to believe that we aren't good enough, that our past will always haunt us, and that we will never measure up. But the voice of God is telling us that we can live a life of restoration in Him. Our Heavenly Father doesn't want us to let our past decisions determine our present peace. Instead, He wants us to find that life of restoration in Him. So grab your Bibles and join us as we dig into God's Word to discover timeless truths and proper application for our lives today. Welcome back to our study through the book of Revelation, and we've been really enjoying this as we've been working through the basics of apocalyptic literature, understanding its symbolism and how it fits into the greater narrative of Christian and more specifically into Jewish culture um, pre-New Testament and what we call the intertestamental period. And so as we continue to look at what all of this meant, it's important to continue to try to be as objective as possible. We know that that is not always possible, but the reality is we have been taught and brought up in a church culture that has captured a narrative of human history that is largely believing that there is this left behind esque mentality going on that we are you know on pins and needles waiting for you know the nation of Israel to be re you know captured by you know Israel to be taken back and made their own nation again all of the promised land that the dome of the rock where the temple used to stand is going to be leveled and the temple is going to be rebuilt, that we have all of this eschatological expectation going on that there's going to be a, this raise of an, a one-world government, one-world currency, one you know antichrist that's going to take the world by you know just absolutely captivating. The people, right, and the and the, the the everyone that's not a Christian is just going to be led, you know, by the miracles and all these things that are going to happen. And because of that, we've been flavored, so to speak, in our thinking. I don't want to say tainted because that that sounds um, negative, but the reality is, every single one of us is changed and influenced by the mindset we were raised in. For example, one of the things that I was brought up being taught about the end times is that there would be a pre-tribulational rapture that John Darby taught about 200 years ago that there was this thing he saw in scriptures where before the great tribulation and the rise of you know the antichrist and all of these you know end of the world things that all the Christians would be taken out from the world and this would be a sign to those that this would you know they've been left behind right and the, this you know songs that were made popular in the 60s 70s and even you know, remade in the 90s and 2000s that you know we we have to be careful not to get left behind 
And this idea of a pre-tribulational rapture, I was taught from childhood, but as I began to study the scriptures as an academic, as a theologian, as a more mature believer, I didn't see any evidence for that. And I had to say, as an objective thinker, this makes no plausible sense. The early church didn't teach it. The early church fathers didn't teach it. Jesus didn't teach it. And so this idea that we have grown up with needs to be left behind. The idea of being left behind needs to be left behind. And we need to look at this as objectively as possible. And so as we've done this, we began to see that John, following the pattern of an apocalypse, has started off with his time on the island of Patmos receiving a vision of heavenly things. And he's told in numerous times, and will be told in numerous more times, that these are things he needs to write down because they're going to happen soon. And we've gone through this. We're not going to re- rework our work we've already done. We're not going to, to beat you know that any further. But as we are recapping, we were looking at John's vision of Jesus, that John sees Jesus walking in front of seven lampstands, a candelabra, a menorah. And this is a picture of what the high priest would be doing in the temple, that we see that Jesus is symbolizing and personifying the great high priest that we see taught about in the New Testament, specifically in the book of Hebrews, where Jesus ministers daily in the presence of God and he is here in front of the lampstand that represents the sevenfold, the the perfect. Because remember, the seven number seven in Jewish culture means one hundred percent complete. That the totality of the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, is in the temple of God in heaven, and Jesus is acting as the great high priest. And as John sees him, he describes him in all of this imagery that is a one of the tons and tons of references to Old Testament apocalyptic imagery that he goes back and speaks about the way Daniel saw God the Father, the Ancient of Days, the Ancient One, in Daniel chapter 9 when the one like the Son of Man receives all power and authority from the Ancient One, from the Ancient of Days. And that same symbolism that described God the Father, John is using to describe Jesus the Son. And then we see, as we looked at and we left off in our last episode in Revelation chapter 1 and verses 17 and 18, that John falls on his face like a dead man. And this is also a reference, but not to the Old Testament, to the New Testament, where John, Peter, and James see Jesus transfigured on Mount Hermon before he goes down and begins the, the, the time of his passion where Jesus is eventually betrayed, crucified, and then resurrects. You know, he takes his life back, resurrects from the dead. And so John, when he saw Jesus in his glory, both he, Peter, and James, they fell on their faces dead men. And Jesus did the same thing. He wakes them up and says, hey, don't be afraid. That he shows them his glory. John is referring to that experience when he says this, and it's the same thing that happens, that he fell on his face, but it said that Jesus laid his right hand on me, the hand of authority, the hand of power, 
Christians. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. Jesus is claiming to be the same as we saw earlier in the chapter as God the Father. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. This is where we left off last time. So get your Bibles out. We're going to keep going. Revelation chapter 1. We're going to finish Revelation chapter 1 in this time together and hopefully start Revelation chapter 2. Now, when we left off, we were talking about how Jesus defeated death. That in the great love story of God, we see that after you know the fall of man, that what Adam and Eve surrendered in the Garden of Eden, Jesus got back in the Garden of Gethsemane by choosing God's will, God the Father, over his own. Adam and Eve chose their will over God's, and Jesus chose to follow and be obedient to his heavenly Father rather than his own will. And by dying, Jesus defeated death. The only way to defeat death is to die and then take your life back up. But human beings can't do that that only God could do that. But Jesus, this is why Jesus had to be both 100% God and 100% human. And so Jesus defeated death, so he holds that key. And now he also has the key to the grave. Now, keys are beautiful symbols. Keys represent access and authority. If you had a key to something, a key to a building, a key to a bookshelf, a key to a secretary or a cabinet, you could open a lock. Keys open locked things. And so, you know, when I got promoted at the job I have now, I was given more keys to more areas in the clinic that I work at. At different hospitals I've worked at, my key card gave me different levels of access. I didn't have access everywhere because I wasn't the highest authority. I had some authority. And as you get promoted, as you are given more authority, you're giving more access. You have more keys. And so we may not always use physical keys in this digital age. A key symbolizes access and authority. And Jesus has both of those. Jesus has authority over the death, over death, and over the grave. Now, not only did Jesus defeat death through his death, burial, and resurrection, he also overcame the grave. Now, we began to touch on this in our last session, but let's do a quick reminder that as the history of the world has unfolded as God's great love story for redemption for his people has taken place. As people have died, we had to have a holding pattern, had to have a place for people's spirits to go when their physical bodies died. What we have to remember is that heaven and hell were never the original places that spirits were supposed to go. Human beings were never meant to die. This is why even when you go to the funeral of, I I went one time to a a funeral for a World War II veteran who died after living a hundred years, and it was still sad, surrounded by his family and friends, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, right? All of these people that celebrated his life, it was still sad. Why? Because death is unnatural. It's the most unnatural thing ever because we were not created to die. Death is the result of sin, spiritual and physical death. And the way that works is that when 
up until the point of Jesus when a person died, their soul had to go somewhere. And so it went to the place of the dead, the grave, also called Sheol. And depending on which book you read, which you know, rabbi you study under, you know, this idea of what Sheol is is not exactly clear. The Bible doesn't explain it in great detail, but what we see in the glimpses we get is that it is a place where people go as they wait for God's judgment, for the day of the Lord. Now, there are many different days of the Lord, and that's something that gets often confused. As you read through the Old Testament, you will see different prophets talk about different times where it's the day of the Lord. Whenever God comes to render judgment, and he executes that judgment, that time is called the day of the Lord. This great day of the Lord that we are looking forward to, though, is the time where God will put all creation back in order. He will redeem and restore all things, and he will once again live among his people. This was predicted by the prophets, and it will one day happen in the future. Hasn't happened yet. We know that because the world is still full of death and evil. God has not redeemed and restored all things yet. But when Jesus conquered death, he also conquered Sheol, the grave. Now, as time went on, there are four, and we're not going to be able to go too deep into this today. If you want to read more about this, read the works of Dr. Michael Heiser, the, specifically the Unseen Realm, and the work of Dr. David Bass, specifically his work called the, um, called the Battle for the Keys. And both of these texts speak about the ancient Canaanite, Babylonian, and Jewish mindsets that all work together to understand and describe what happens when we die and where our spirits go. What we see, though, is the New Testament answers this question by saying in passages such as in 1 Peter 4 that Jesus, when he died, he went into the depths and he visited those held in captivity. Now, there are four things we need to cover before we move on to understand what this means. We've talked about Sheol. The second is the word Tartarus, and Tartarus is only used in the scripture a couple of times. It's used in the Greek interpretation um, and translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, and it's also used in the New Testament whenever it talks about where the fallen angels who had children with human beings, the Nephilim, the giants, basically, <clears throat> that when these angels rebelled against God, these heavenly beings, excuse me, when they rebelled against God and they had children with the sons of men, the sons of God came into the sons of men, the Old Testament says, and had children with them, they were cast down into the grave, into Tartarus, where they are held until the day of judgment. So there's Sheol, there's Tartarus. The third word we need to be familiar with is the word Hades. As Alexander the Great and, Helen, Great and Hellenistic culture took over the Middle East, the Greek word Hades and the Greco-Roman mentality coupled with the idea of Sheol along with other you know, cultures and gave this mentality that there is a world after this world where spirits go in the afterlife and depending on how you lived – was how you you know lived in the afterlife. If you lived an honorable life, then your afterlife was pleasant. If you lived a dishonorable life, then your afterlife was torturous. 
And this idea of Hades is often used in the New Testament to refer to Sheol. Why? Because Jesus lived during the time of the Roman Empire. And so the, the Jesus and the apostles would have been heavily influenced by the vocabulary of the time as they wrote in Greek. They would have used the word Hades to refer to that. Specifically, and we talked about this in our Easter message that I keep pointing back to because it was really good and really informative of this mindset. But when Jesus went to Caesarea Philippi and stood in front of an area that the the people believed were the literal gates of Hades, and Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not withstand it, meaning that, that, that these, these supernatural beings that live in the spirit world will not win against the kingdom of God, that God will, God's kingdom will one day conquer it all, including the unseen world, including, including Hades itself. And this is the word that Jesus is, is speaking here. I have the keys of death and Hades. Now there's another word that will become important as we get closer to the end when we talk about things like the lake of fire, and that's the word Gehenna. Gehenna is a shortened name in the Greek for what's called the Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom was a place where in ancient times from Canaanite culture, Babylonian culture, Assyrian culture, uh, even sinful Israelite cultures, that when people would go to these places and worship the Baals, they would worship the pagan gods, specifically gods like Chemosh, right, and Dagon, they would, and Moloch, they would offer children as sacrifices to them. They would take their own children when they were babies and kill them as a sacrifice to these gods. And you can imagine how evil and, and how specifically dark and set aside this valley of Hinnom was with all these. They would not just sacrifice them, they would make them pass through the fire, is the phrase. But it means they would burn them alive. And they would burn alive their children as a sacrificial offering to these evil gods of the Baals. And so in the Israelite culture and even the culture surrounding Israel, the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, was known as an evil, dark, dirty place. Some legends have popped up about burning trash there, and there's no real evidence for that. But we have tons and tons of biblical and extra-biblical evidence that the Valley of Hinnom, which got shortened to the word Gehenna, was an evil place where death was there. And the belief was that these, these demonic, evil, unseen spiritual beings lived in this area. And this was where children were burned alive as a sacrifice to them. When Jesus refers to what we translate the word hell, it's the word Gehenna. That's the picture Jesus wanted the people of his day to understand. We're going to talk more about that in the future, but I want you to wrap your mind around these four words, Sheol, Tartarus, Gehenna, and Hades. And when Jesus says to John, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave, he's talking about Hades. Jesus set free, the scriptures teach us, those spirits who had been waiting for him. 
and now they are in heaven. And we'll see that in a little while. The spirits of those who died in service to Jesus, who were believers and righteous people who followed after God like Abraham and Moses and David and Daniel, they would now be set free from Sheol. How were they set free? Who, who, who let them loose? Jesus did. And we read that in the scriptures. That's why in the Apostles' Creed, we say things like, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, right? And one of the phrases we say in that, that liturgy is that he descended into hell, right? And now he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That We don't always say that in more Protestant churches, but that's been part of the Apostles' Creed for a long time, this belief that the harrowing of hell, as it's called. And so that's what Jesus is talking about, that Jesus has the key. He has authority and access to those places. Why? Because he's ruler of all. He has all authority. So now let's finish up the chapter. Revelation chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. In this reminder to John that Jesus is the one who is glorified. Jesus is the one who has all authority. Jesus is the one you know, acting as the high priest who has the key to death and Hades. Now he look at what he tells John in verse 19. Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is what the book of Revelation is going to tell us through the eyes of John. John is going to find out the things that are now happening. That means in John's lifetime, okay, that's 2,000 years ago almost, and the things that will happen. These are things that are going to happen after the things that John is currently seeing and living in. So if John is writing this uh, before A.D. 70, it would have had to have been around A.D. 60, based off the history we've already looked at in the earlier episodes. And this is the things that are happening in history, for Israel, for the world at this point in history, and the things that will soon happen. And then Jesus tells John this in verse 20. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, hold on, James. I thought you said that the menorah represented the presence of God. It does. But John is adding to this. John is saying, okay, the things that were passed are now adding another layer. Jesus is telling John that there are seven stars and there are seven lampstands, seven angels and seven church communities. What does this mean? Well, the first thing we need to remember is that John is writing a specific message to specific people at a specific point in history. That's why he's going to write these things down to give it to them so they can prepare for the things that are going to happen. And that's important to remember, and it's going to guide our proper method of interpretation. But as we look at these things that are going to soon happen in John's lifetime, we also need to recognize who's he writing them to. Now, the first thing we see is that the seven stars are angels of the seven churches. And there's been a lot of debate over this. The word here in the Greek is the word malach. Okay, it's not angelos. It's the word malach, which means messenger. Now, the word malach in, in the Greek uh, is, 
is referring to, um, you know, this idea that there are heavenly beings that, you know, God sends out into the, you know, world to go and share whatever he wants done. But it's the, the recognition that when Jesus is is talking about these messengers, the, the, the word here is, you know, giving us this idea that we are understanding there are messages being sent out. But why, uh, what are we doing here with this idea for Having messages, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm looking, I've got my notes wrong. Malak is the Hebrew word, excuse me. Angelos is the Greek word. So when we look at this idea, it's a messenger. It's a heavenly being that is given the job of giving a message. When the world was was made, God made heavenly beings and earthly beings. But not every heavenly being is an angel. An angel is a job description. It is not a category of being. It's, you know, the, the word for heavenly beings is the word Elohim. And now God is sometimes referred to as Elohim. Actually, most of the time the word Elohim is used, it refers to God. But God is an Elohim. Not all Elohim are God. God is a heavenly being. God is spirit. John 4 tells us, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. But the word malach is, in, in, is the equivalent in Hebrew to the Greek word angelos. And it does not have to be a heavenly being, though. Anyone can be an angelos. Anyone can be a messenger. And so when John is told to give this message to the angel of this church community, what sense does it make for God to give John a message to give to a heavenly being? If John is an earthly being, why is God in heaven giving John on earth a message to give to a heavenly being? That makes no sense. The thing that makes more sense is to say these are not heavenly beings that are in charge of overseeing and fighting for these church communities. Not that that's unbelievable in the book of Daniel. When Daniel's visited by Gabriel, he says the reason why he couldn't show up was because the demon prince of Tyre, the spirit prince of Tyre, was fighting against him, and it was only because Michael came to fight that that spirit prince of Tyre that Gabriel could be relieved to bring Daniel the message. So it's not un unbelievable. It's not inconceivable. It just doesn't make sense in this context. The better sense of this, the more logical choice is that this angel that he is referring to are the pastors. These are the messengers of the church. These would be either the, the people that are the preachers and the ministers of this church that are bringing the message from God, or it could possibly be the people that John is going to send the message through. But the most logical choice, if this is a person assigned to this church community, is going to be the pastor. That's the most logical option. Can I say with 100% certainty that's what it is? No, but I can say that is the most logical option. That John is going to give letters, and when we get into the next section, John is going to give each of these seven church communities throughout the region of, of the Greek uh, region of Asia, He's going to give them a message to the pastor, to the angel, right? The angelos, the messenger, and the churches. So 
With this in mind, and I'm sorry it took me a minute to sort through my notes, that, that when I saw the word malak, it threw me for a, a, a loop, but I wanted to make sure I was looping it right, that malak is the Hebrew word, and the, angelos is the Greek word, but both of these words can refer to either heavenly beings who bring a message, like when Gabriel is given a message to give to Mary in, in the, the beginning of the Christmas story, or it could refer to a heavenly being that's given a message, or excuse me, an earthly being that's given a message. It doesn't have to be. But we see that the seven lights of the candelabra, the seven lamps on the menorah, represent the uh, seven churches, and the stars represent the seven pastors there. And John is going to give these church communities. Now the last thing we're going to look at before we wrap up today is, why is it in Jesus' right hand? Does, because Jesus only has one hand? Don't we all have two hands? You know, if you're a humanoid, right? You're a human being? Yes. But the right hand is the hand of power. The right hand is the hand of authority. The right side of, of, of things are, are the authoritative side. If you look at a, a military uniform, where's the flag? It's on the right shoulder. If you salute somebody, it's with the right hand. You don't salute with the left hand. In Middle Eastern cultures or African cultures, you don't shake hands with the left hand. That's your unclean hand. So what do we do with all of this? We recognize that as we wrap up our time today, John is going to be given messages, like we said, to specific people and specific points in history. But we also need to recognize the number seven is being used again. Seven seven angels or pastors, messengers, and seven church communities. What's this number seven represent? It's the number of totality, of completion, of 100%. So that also means that today, pastors, ministers, and church communities can take lessons and application from these letters. Now, it's tempting as we get into this, and we're going to talk more about this next time, to try to interpret each of these churches as ages of the church or prophetic mindsets or to try to say, which church are we in our church community? These are specific church communities in specific places in the world at specific points in history. They're not symbolic of a you know, of a age or something like that. John is writing real letters, but what does it symbolize? It represents how Every church, every believer, every pastor can fall into the traps and the dangers we're going to see these church communities deal with. So as we finish up this session, before we move into the next one, just remember that every one of us has something we can apply from the Bible, even if it was not written to us, it was still written for us. Hopefully this has helped a lot. Hopefully this has you know, helped you connect the dots and look at this objectively. And hopefully this is helping to bless you as you say, wow, how do I make sure I'm living like Jesus is coming soon? How do I live like that? We're going to talk more about that next time. Until then, be blessed. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We pray that God uses it to inform your mind, improve your life, and ignite your heart with a renewed passion to impact others for the kingdom of God. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you can continue along with us on this journey of restoration living.